Welcome to ESA Explores. I'm Stephen Ennis, the co-host and co-producer of the ESA Explores Beyond series. What you're about to listen to is actually the remastered version of the first episode of our series. We had some technical issues while recording with Luca, so the audio quality is not quite up to the standard that you'll hear in later episodes. Nonetheless, I really hope you enjoy. Welcome to ESA Explores, an official podcast of the European Space Agency. You're listening to our Beyond series. In this series, we take you behind the scenes of ESA astronaut Luca Parmitano's second mission to the International Space Station. I'm your host, Stephen Ennis. Let's go beyond. In this episode, we give you a chance to hear from Luca himself about his upcoming mission. Luca is part of ESA's 2009 class of astronauts. Luca's first mission, named Valare, took place in 2013. During this mission, Luca spent 166 days on board the International Space Station. He performed two spacewalks and carried out over 40 science experiments. Luca demonstrated nerves of steel when water began to fill his helmet during his second and now infamous spacewalk, EVA-23. In July 2019, Luca will be launched once more to the International Space Station from the Baikonur Cosmodrome in Kazakhstan. He will share this journey in a Soyuz spacecraft with NASA astronaut Andrew Morgan and Russian cosmonaut Alexander Skortsov. During the second part of his mission, Luca will become the third European and first ever Italian commander of the International Space Station. He has been training for years to fulfill this role and to prepare for the experiments he will perform in space. Future episodes of the Beyond series will cover a lot more about Luca's experiments and activities during the Beyond mission. On one of his last days of training in the European Astronaut Center in Cologne, Germany, we sat down with Luca to talk about his upcoming mission. Luca Parmitano, welcome to ESA Explorers. We are roughly two months from launch. Could you explain to the audience what stage of preparation you're currently at? I would say that it's the final stages of preparation, if anything, because most of the times these days, uh, once I finish a class, I hear a lot of, well, that was the last class for this system, that was the last class for this training, that was the last class for that. So a couple of weeks ago, I was in Houston and that was the last class for uh, EVA system. And then a couple of days later, it was the last class for robotics. And here in the EAC, these are the last classes for all the European training that I received, payloads and the systems, um, my specialist uh, qualification. So um, the next thing for me is going to be finishing up some, I would say extra training that we asked to receive uh, in Houston for EVA, some specific EVAs that may show up during our increment. After that, uh, both uh, my crew and I will fly to Russia will join with our Russian Soyuz commander. We will be busy for about a month of intensive examinations. We have, you know, some manual exercises, docking, landing uh, approach uh, with the Soyuz, and then the whole crew will perform some training or demonstration of, of our proficiency on the Russian segment. And then the final exam that qualifies us for the flight as a crew will be uh, on the Soyuz where it's basically a whole day in the, in the Soyuz um, simulator with our spacesuits, the Sokol spacesuits. And the instructors and examiners will uh, put us through a bunch of different emergency situations that we have to solve. And then after that, uh, there are some ceremonies that we're quite familiar with because they're always the same. And then a trip to Baikonur, the Cosmodrome in Kazakhstan for quarantine, final preparation, final checks, and then the launch. 
so far as you're getting ready for launch, does it feel very familiar to the Valari mission or is this a, a different kind of game? Well, it feels at the same time familiar, but very different. Uh, familiar because I've been through the process, I've been through the training, but at the same time, the training is different now because it's evolved. It's been six years. And there are new experiments. Some of the systems are new, are better. They took into consideration, both in Russia and the US, here in, the, in, in Europe, a lot of the debriefing items that we brought up. And also there is a difference in attitude. I'm different. So I'm six years older. Uh, I'm a, a flown astronaut. Uh, I have a very good sense of what is important for me to focus on because if I will need it um, for I will need it for a long time. I will need it for all the uh, for the whole flight, as opposed to some of the things that I will. I know that they're so deep down details that I, I probably will forget. There is no way I can retain them, and it's just it's just better off if I have a good idea of the general understanding. But then I'm going to have to review the procedure, ask, for, ask questions in order to get it right. And that saves a lot of time, as a matter of fact. The same thing happened with the Soyuz, where I, I was able to go through the training a little faster, and both because my Russian is better, but also because I have, it's the second time that I go through a lot of the systems uh, that never changed. And of course, the new systems, I, I was able to adapt my previous knowledge to what changed, and so uh, that's also easy. The third thing that changed is my attitude towards uh, the flight itself and the training in terms of first time you feel the need to demonstrate how good you are. Rightly so, I would say, because everybody's expectations, you have expectations, but you just don't know how you're going to be. So you want to show that you're good, that you can do everything that you ask for. Um, you also want to learn as much as possible. It's really, in a sense, it's all about me, me, me. I want to do this, I want to do that, I want to learn this, I want to learn that. You want to grab and collect and make up a bag of tools that is your experience. But when you come back as a flown astronaut, a little older, hopefully a little wiser. And also I, you're going to be a commander. And I'm going correct. to be a commander, so I feel more a responsibility to give back and I'm lucky because I have a couple of first-time flyers uh, flying with me. Um, Drew Morgan is my crewmate in the Soyuz. He's flying for the first time. Two of the crews on orbit were first-time flyers on, in orbit. And so even by the time I get there, they will have a few months of experience, but you know, there's still things that may, they not, might not have seen that I have. And then in the second part of the expedition towards Expedition 61, uh, when, I, when I take over the commandership, there will be a new, uh, crew, a new set of crews that are flying for the first time, crewmates. And so it really feels like a responsibility for me to show them as what, what I've learned and to make it easier for them. And as a matter of fact, that's the role of the commander. The commander in orbit does not issue commands. It's called commander, but his, re his role really is to be at the service of the crew as a facilitator, make the job easier for everybody and make sure that the conditions on orbit are the best possible so that everybody can perform at their maximum level. So there's obviously a little bit of added responsibility and uh, like you said, kind of a different attitude going into the Beyond mission. But I noticed that also the Beyond mission coincides with the launch, the 50 year anniversary of Apollo 11. It coincides and it is a coincidence that it does because initially 
uh, Expedition 60 was supposed to start somewhere in the middle of, of May. Uh, if you remember, Alex Kerr's flight was supposed to start on the, sometimes toward the end of May. I was supposed to fly exactly one year later. His flight uh, slid about uh, half a month or so, and, my, and then my flight slid to the right a little more. So uh, initially it was the 6th of July, then they told us we were going to fly on the 24th. Finally, be, just because of orbital mechanics and not because of any specific reason, it landed on the 20th of July. Now, of course, we are ecstatic about it because the patch of Expedition 60 was dedicated to the Apollo mission. So it's a nice symmetric symmetry that two years ago we thought about this. Let's dedicate our Expedition 60 patch to the Apollo, Apollo 11 mission. And then two years later, it just happened that we will be launching on the same day. And I would say that that's the best possible way to celebrate. And there's also a wonderful alignment there with the kind of theme behind Beyond, right? Uh, the Beyond As mission patch even has the moon on the Beyond mission patch. It sure does. So the, the, the patch that, that uh, Karen and I designed, Karen is the graphic artist at ESA. The patch that we designed together contains a lot of elements that are connected to the theme of, of going beyond exploring further, pushing yourself, pushing the envelope. So it starts as a helmet. I think the helmet of a spacesuit is probably the most recognizable element of, of an astronaut. Astronauts wear helmets when they're outside, when they're in, the space, in their spacecraft. So it starts from that theme. You have the reflection of the Earth with the space station, meaning uh, we're outside, we're floating close to Earth or low Earth orbit, but we might be getting closer to the space station or maybe we're going away from the space station. And then the theme goes into the moon and Mars saying, hey, we are, we are on the space station, uh, moving away, still in low Earth orbit, but we are paving the way for future astronauts, future generations to go further, to go beyond towards the moon, towards Mars. And then there is a, the black sky of, of space because we should never stop exploring. Well, that sends a wonderful message, Luca, and uh, I think you've really done a fantastic job for our listeners of describing the mission patch. And of course, for our listeners, you'll be able to find a link to the Beyond Mission Patch in the show notes. Luca, could you talk a little bit more about how you want the legacy of Beyond to be perceived afterwards? Because it sets lofty goals to set the tone for exploration forward to the moon and beyond to Mars. Um, how would you like people to remember Beyond after it's finished? Well, the individual mission, just like the individual crew members are not very important, and they shouldn't be. We work for a program, that's the important part. So Beyond is part of a, of a, of a sequence, if you will. As a matter of fact, the idea of the name came from uh, the inspiration that I received from my classmates. When Alex flew the first time, his, his mission was Blue Dot, which is the Earth. His focus was the Earth and, and, and this lonely planet in, in the periphery of a big galaxy. And then, Thomas Pesquet called this mission Proxima, uh, which is near. It was a reference to Proxima Centauri, yes, stars and interstellar flight, but it was saying, hey, Proxima is, is near. It's what, what's near to our art is the space station of the Earth for the Earth. And then Alex flew again, it's called this mission Horizon. So there's a path in the Earth, Proxima, near Earth orbit, Horizon, something that's still going a little further away, but in, in the vicinity. And so what I mean to say is that the mission beyond, its legacy is that it's leaving something for the future to pick up. 
Somebody else is going to build onto what Thomas, Alex, Samantha, myself are building, and team, of course, Team Peak. We are building something uh, through our through incremental testing, experimentation, science, technology, inventing, testing, changing plans. All this legacy of the International Space Station program, maybe one day will be forgotten, but it doesn't matter because what we built will be, will be carried on in future exploration. And so the only legacy that I feel is important for me is that I gave my very tiny contribution to exploration. So on a personal level, Luca, um, is there anything in particular that you're really looking forward to back on station? It, be, it would be really unfair, both to myself, my memories, my emotions, and the listeners, to pick something specific over everything else. I could ask you the same question. Imagine that you're, that you're, lo- that, that you're stepping, even before the launch itself, you're stepping to the rocket, it's night, you see your rocket built for you, standing up there in the middle of the desert, all white with these lights. Isn't that an awesome memory? Is it better or worse than the actual launch? The launch is super exciting. You're there, strapped in your seat, the acceleration, the excitement, and then eight minutes and 48 seconds later, you are floating for the first time in space with your friends that you went through all this training, and then six hours later, you're docking, and then you open the hatch, you see your friends that have been waiting for you for the past two and a half months, and then you spend, and then your first view of the Earth in from Cupola and then working all these, these crazy experiments and this amazing life on orbit where even the easiest thing becomes a challenge or not. Or the, you know, going out EVA for the first time, even the emergency or coming back. How do you put them in a ranking? Would it be fair? I think in general, it would just be really unfair to pick one, one memory over another, one event over another. And I think that together with my friends, when the astronauts lands and he starts dreaming about when's, when's it gonna be next time that I fly on the space station, it's because what you miss is not a single event, it's not a single part of the experience, but it's the whole experience, living on, to the, living on the space station, becoming a spaceman, adapting to, the, to space, and you know, once you've lived it, and once you've seen certain things, you, then you just miss them for the rest of your life. I can really feel that you're ready to be back there, emotionally almost in the same place, ready to be back there on station. I, I assume that uh, you know that you have to do about two hours of exercise every day. Is, is that okay with you? I could do three. <laughs> <laughs> of course, and it's also important that you guys have limits and the exercise, I guess, a good way of blowing off some of that stress. And of course, another important aspect is mealtime, right? And there are some special meals that you can get brought up with you. But I'm a little bit curious if before the launch, there's any food that you're like focusing on that you know you won't be able to get on station. I really eat a lot of salads, both for dietary reasons, but also because I just enjoy it. Things that are crunchy, you know, fresh salad or um, cucumbers, things that you, you, know, you put in your mouth and you squeeze and they are uh, juicy. And th- those things are really absent on orbit just because the food that we have is all prepackaged and uh, it's prepackaged, it's, uh, it's already, it's pre-made, pre-cooked. So most of the things are cooked, that there is almost nothing crunchy. Even other food that could be crunchy and generally not because if it crunches, it breaks. If it breaks, it makes um, debris that flies around. And so, the, you know, those, kind, those fresh food that, that, for a, that 
for about a uh, seven months time, you're just not going to see. But uh, fresh food like cucumbers or salad, they have a lot of fiber, which tends to come, one, come, come in one end and go out the other side. And obviously during the flight, during the initial phase of the flight in the Soyuz, the, the doctors don't want us to have those kind of problems or issues. I believe the delicate term I've heard is low residue diet. That is a good way to put it. There is a procedure to get rid of some of that right before the flight and also the day of the flight, they obvi obviously they let us eat, but it, it's all special food that is being known to have low residue so that we don't, we don't run into uncomfortable situations during the first couple of days. So Luca, you've done a fantastic job of covering some of the, uh, I guess, the general questions about Beyond, but explaining Beyond, about how uh, the, the feeling of going onto orbit, that was a very visceral uh, description you gave and it was really enjoyable. I have some more uh, kind of out there questions. Okay. So first one and probably most important, Star Wars or Star Trek? Star Wars. Star Wars? Okay. Prequels or sequels? Right now, sequels. Yeah, I, I can respect that. There was something wrong with the prequels being in a very advanced society and advanced technology. Star Wars was a space Western and they lost that in the prequels. So definitely the sequels, were, in the sequels, they were able to capture some of that feeling again. Okay, good. Well, it's, it's on record from an astronaut now, so maybe they'll be able to go back and fix them. <laughs> So this is a little bit more uh, complicated question, uh, sure. so feel free to take your time on it. So if you could be brought back in time to any human spaceflight mission and fly it, which one would it be? If I could pick, I'd pick Apollo 13. Aha! Uh -huh. Well, you did mention that you enjoy sometimes the challenging nature of being on station. So the, the thing is that I'm a test pilot. That's, that's my profession. That's what I do. And I consider myself to this day a test pilot. One of the most satisfying things that I ever did to be selected and trained as a test pilot and specializing uh, in flying a system that is not fully developed and think of ways to make it better. And I have a sense that in because of the way they had to run that mission, adapting constantly, coming up with ways to to survive and to uh, you know overcome obstacle after obstacle. I think it was a true test pilot's mission where uh, just through in, uh, ingenuity and teamwork with the ground and what they had on orbit, uh, they made a success out of an utter failure. Knowing the outcome or not, I think I would have loved that mission. Also, there is something to say. My spacecraft is going to be Soyuz MS-13. I also come from the 13th uh, fighter squadron. Uh, before I became a test pilot. So there's something about number 13 that keeps coming back in my life. So why not? Something about fighting against the superstition, right? Better believe it. So, or not believe it. <laughs> <laughs> so one final question. Do you have a favorite non-fiction uh, vision of humans around the moon? You mentioned that you spend a lot of time thinking about the future. Do you have a favorite vision of how uh, humanity will subsist, will survive, will thrive in cislunar orbit or on the moon's surface? Whatever I am imagining today, I think in reality is going to be much better and more surprising. Reality has a, has a way to be always more surprising than anything we can imagine. So I'll stick to that. I'll take okay. it. 
Luca, thank you so much for taking the time to come with us and sit on East Explorers and talk to us about your upcoming mission. It was a real pleasure talking to you. And uh, again, I can't thank you enough for your time. Thank you for the questions and uh, I hope you, you enjoyed uh, the answers and even more so I hope the listeners enjoyed them. I'm sure they will. In the next episode of the Beyond series, we're going to cover final preparations leading up to launch to the International Space Station. This podcast is brought to you by the European Space Agency. You can learn more about Luca and his Beyond mission at lucaparmitano.isa.int. Tweet your questions or thoughts to at isaspaceflight using the hashtag isaexplorers. And of course, hit that subscribe button to stay up to date. Thank you for listening and stay tuned.